yeah. Yeah, I got a really big soft spot in my heart for the early 2000s, right? Because yeah, I'm born in 1990, so by the time the turn of the millennium hits, 2001-02, I'm 10, 11, 12 years old, and my family's moved to Ringwood, and me and my brother became exposed to this wider subcultural landscape, if you will, because you got to think about what that epoch in time was like. I mean... This is the mid to late phase of the underworld wars, which every half-assed journalist and TV producer is still milking like 20, 25 years later. And, you know, so many young guys want to be gangsters on the back of this kind of bullshit infamy that was like permeated through through the streets and through the folklore of Australian crime. But it was also running parallel with the re-emergence of like a lot of street gangs at the time and this is the the era of trolley poles and box cutters and ice picks and um we were seeing all this in our area and as well like you had all these other subcultures too because you had like goths that used to smoke bongs in ringwood drains like used to go to flinder street station and see punks like 20 deep on the steps um man the emo thing was really big like i always forget the emo thing um you know, ice had hit the scene, the start of the ice epidemic. I think speed was still a thing, you know, and of course, but, and the party drugs are still really good and a lot of the older heads used to, were still going to raves and that was all still pumping and the pingers were still good and all this kind of stuff. I mean, even the Australian cricket team was still killer back then, <laughs> you know what I mean? But there's so many different subcultural forces at work and, I just felt like I wanted to be a part of it all. It was so stimulating to me. And um, you got to think too, this is before the era of social media really hit. Because all we were really doing with the internet back then was using um, Napster to like download a couple of songs. And that was really it. Um, if you wanted to be a part of a subculture, if you wanted to get amongst it, you had to go outside. You had to go to the sale yards where the skaters were or you had to rock the train lines where all the graffiti riders hung out or you had to go to venues and park meetups where the hip-hop was happening, you know, because especially for me, hip-hop was such a big part of my life and this is kind of around the same time that the Hilltop Hoods really took off in a commercial sense which brought a lot of uh, attention and attracted a lot of newcomers to the hip-hop thing, you know. Um same with anything, even if it's just local team sports or whatever. If you wanted to be a part of some kind of culture back then, you couldn't really do it online. You had to go outside and be a part of something. And I think, sadly, that's something that's missing from the youth of today because, um, yeah, I'm sure I'm sure back in the day there was, a, there was an open vacuum of, like, danger and risk associated with getting down with some of these subcultures. But at the same time, like... It built a lot of lifelong friendships and um, helped a lot of young people develop a lot of social skills and get in touch with their creative urges, you know, which um, I'm eternally thankful for, man. I love that era. I miss rocking up and down the trains with a discman, listening to music, you know, and just being a part of the whole circus of what was going on outside, man. Yeah. Yeah, early 2000s was mad. Yeah, I've always really prided myself on individualism too. As much as I love being down with subcultures and having a kind of like brotherhood mentality with the people I've been down with, I also just really felt like the coolest guys are always 
running their own race, you know? Yeah, like, because you've got to think it was a melting pot of characters back then for me because once I started going onto the streets and rocking the train lines and going to events and hanging out with people, I was meeting meeting all sorts of characters, right? Coming across all sorts of characters and individuals that I just remember thinking was so intriguing because these people were nothing like my school teachers or my parents or any other role models that I might have had in the past because these people just seemed to totally embody like the cultural landscape of what was going on. And then you just had the out there like curveballs and vagrants of the area. Like I can remember the guy in Ringwood that used to rock an all black suit and wear big black sunglasses. He looked like the front man of an 80s new wave pop band, you know what I mean? And he used to drink bourbon in a in a two liter LA ice. Uh, bottle and just laugh his head off walking around Ringwood all day long every day you see him two or three times a day um yeah I couldn't I could remember another guy that used to always wear a black Adidas tracksuit religiously and he'd be up and down the train lines always asking you for money when you were real young and this guy I just remember I could never take my eyes off it he had his throat slash mega he just had the worst scar across his throat and uh <laughs> I don't know why, I always just found all the characters fascinating, you know, like there was an, another guy, yeah, and there was another guy that oh, a lot of heads from that era and that area would remember, he used to busk at Flinders Street Station and he was um, deaf mute, and he used to busk with an acoustic guitar at Flinders Street Station, but he was actually from Basie, so he'd always be up and down the train lines going back past my area further out to go home, and like, poor guy used to get bullied on the trains a lot, you know, but other, other young scallywags and whatnot. Um, and fuck, years later, I remember reading that him and um, two other two other people in the deaf mute community they threw a guy off a balcony in Nelson Street Ringwood and killed him. Like, yeah, it was a full killer that deaf mute guy. But um, yeah, like I was just so intrigued by just these cool older skaters and gang members and notorious boob heads and um, tough blokes with big reputations from the area because. I just felt that they embodied that don't give a fuck attitude, you know, and um, that had this kind of mystique and power at a really juvenile street level that I just thought was alluring, you know what I mean? It's They emitted a certain kind of power that I wanted, you know, I had really low self-esteem back then and I just felt like I wanted to be like these people but my own version. And I wanted to be down with these type of people. Yeah, and I would go on to be down with a lot of a lot of crazy fucking characters from all domains. For sure. Yeah, my first addiction was food. Uh, I was 120 kilos when I was 12. I was already aware that I had really low self-esteem. I had a lot of issues in the home. And, and food is how I started coping. You know, I was already sneaking out to to buy or steal junk food and to go secretly eat it because even at the tender age of seven or eight years old I understood that what I was doing was wrong and I certainly felt like it was shameful so I started to hide it you know like a junkie but um yeah I can remember about seven years old and me and my friend we realized that you could like 
break into the local canteen at primary school on the weekends. His older brothers had showed us and they kind of jerried one day that the windows would open. They didn't lock them on the weekends. So we went and did it. And I can remember just doing it the first time. Like, I was anxious, but I felt like I had this supreme focus. You know what I mean? I felt like a master thief. I was fucking seven-year-old Thomas Crown back then, man. I thought I was like Sean Connery in Entrapment or some shit. You know what I mean? And I just remember like they had these blue soft drinks it was like blue heaven milkshake but a soft drink or something really fucking chat but at the time when you're seven years old it's just like cocaine you know so we popped the window we get in there and we ransack the place and gank all these drinks and paddle pops and snacks and then we just posted up on the other side of the primary school behind this building and and just started eating all this food and the funny thing is like for my mate that i did it with at the time that was it you know, once off, you're just not really drawn to this type of thing. It was just a fun, young, risk-taking childhood thing. But for me, I couldn't wait for the next weekend. And the next weekend after that, I kept going back and popping through the window and stealing junk food and going to hide behind the portables at the primary school on the weekends and throwing off to my mum that I was just going to kick the football or go for a walk in a local park or something and yeah, I started running this kind of junkie-like behavior even back then, you know, and um, it was all about the escapism for me because I already had really low self-esteem back then and not the greatest home environment. So even at that young, tender age, uh, I was starting to find coping mechanisms and started running behaviors that would protect those coping mechanisms, you know, so... It's fucking funny, but it's sad looking backwards. Yeah, let me tell you, the life of a young male is plagued with risk-taking behavior. But that's across the board. But the ones that continue on with this behavior and escalate, it's the ones with unresolved traumas, you know? And um, at the same time, man, it's funny, adolescence in particular is so funny, like, discovering life as a young male, like, man, I can remember, oh, we were about 13, 14 years old, and about nine or ten of us went to this kid's house whose parents weren't home on a Saturday, because this other kid we went to school with, he told us he downloaded a lot of porn, which to us was like, back then, you know, this was, this was something, you know, and then... Man, let me tell you, there was a lot of sick shit on this bird DVD. <laughs> uh, but one video in particular, man, I kid you not, like nine or ten of us young guys watching it, it's this video where this girl is just getting like full fucked by a horse. <laughs> by a horse, right? And she's grinning from ear to ear, got this big smile on her face. And we're in shock, we're laughing, and the whole spectrum of emotions that come with it. But <laughs> in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, like, you know, we're young adolescent guys just trying to figure out women, and most of us hadn't had sex then, and all this kind of stuff. And I'm starting to think, like, man, do women like horses? <laughs> is, is this what, like, adult women are really secretly into? Like, she looks like she's loving it, and... And this horse has got a cock the size of a fucking baseball bat. Like, how am I meant to compete with that? <laughs> yeah, never met a girl that's into horses, thankfully. But, you know, never say never.
lot of funny moments along the way too, especially with drug use. Don't get me wrong, you know, like... Man, I can remember having an acid trip actually, and it was like the acid was being dropped onto these fruit tingles. Remember the lollies? So me and my mate had these fruit tingles. And another bloke we knew was coming from the gym to come get some chuff in Zanny's office or something, but it was taking forever. So by the time he got there, like the laughing phase had really kicked in. But I'm telling you, this bloke was like covered in fake tan. He was massive. He was on steroids. He came in with one of those little tiny skimpy bodybuilder singlets. And like we were fully rolling, tripping by this stage and his muscles are bulging out like 30, 40 centimeters and contracting like we're having crazy hallucinations. And we couldn't stop laughing at him for like 45 minutes. The poor bloke, he just wanted to grab the chorf and just bounce, you know, but me and my mate were just standing there just laughing at him for like 45 minutes. We just couldn't control ourselves, you know what I mean? And then once he left, we kept laughing about it for like another hour or two, you know, and just crazy out there experiences that you have with experimentation they're just so fucking funny you know i can remember that night like yeah that was killer <laughs> yeah i smoked heroin that night as well actually yeah looking back you know i always had this proclivity for danger and stimulation um i go on to do a lot of work in therapy about this and in regards to how a lot of this is like behavioral coping mechanisms to deal with unresolved traumas and escaping the feeling of the present you know man as a young kid like i always i, I always played by myself i was always a pretty popular kid but i wanted to be isolated and i wanted to be alone i used to i used to play cricket by myself in the backyard and throw a tennis ball against the wall and and then quickly reset and then bat like I was bowling to myself against the wall and batting and at one stage we had a table tennis table which was mad because you could flip up the other side and play yourself against the wall um I used to do that I used to kick the football to myself in in the in the front the front street the street on the front and pretend I was taking big speckies and everything you know and yeah I used to spend a lot of time by myself and um yeah I had this this growing desire for danger and stimulation and creativity and escapism and all of these things are swirling around inside of me that I was too young to comprehend you know and man I used to light fires I got really obsessed with lighting fires at one stage man it makes me sound like a full arsonist but it was more like um my older brother one day came back with a big lighter from the shops and I was only eight years old or so and I thought fuck how'd you get that you know and he jerried that the a bloke at the milk bar down the road will sell you one if it's you say it's for your parents or whatever so i think it was a dollar a dollar twenty i got the coins together and i went and got one myself and got a bunch of newspaper together and put some bricks in a formation and kind of lit this fire but for me i started doing it every night after school every night i couldn't wait to get home and i was mesmerized by the flames i would light these little fires and until it was time to go inside and eat dinner or whatever sometimes after dinner i'll come back out and continue i i was so mesmerized by the flames i, I would just sit there and I, I can't even recall what i was thinking about it's just that i was detached emotionally from whatever else was going on in my childhood at the time and i'll stare into these flames and it's like i was creating something you know let me tell you man if the cfa or the melbourne fire brigade had have seen it man they would have put me on a fucking blacklist that's for sure oh my god 
they would have put a tracking device on me because that's some seriously fucked up behavior now that i look backwards but it wasn't that i wanted to bring harm to others or burn down any establishment i was mesmerized by the flame and it was just enough that was so polarizing it would distract me and that's all i wanted was stimulation yeah yeah by the time 18 or 19 hits i'm into everything right um dealing racking doctor shopping zannies and whatnot hustling and then uh the people around me are starting to hang out with known crims from the prison system known gangsters guys that are into popping tools doing stick ups large commercial other guys Runners, you know, shove drugs up their ass on international flights, and it's, it's a circus by this point, right? But the point I want to make is that you become desensitized. Over the time that you're involved in this lifestyle, your sense of humor becomes darker and darker because everything just becomes funny because it's a way of coping with the pain of what you're going through and. Week in, week out, it was like, we would hear this bloke dropped, or this bloke died, or this bloke got this bloke in jail, or on the outer, or guys getting shot over 1500 bucks, or guys getting robbed and run through, and I don't know, and it just all washes into each other, because you become so numb to the pain of the lifestyle, because you're just going deeper and deeper into protecting your coping mechanism, and... Yeah, I saw a dead body in 2010. Yeah. Yeah, I was staying at my friend's apartment and another friend rented the front room and me and another mate, we'd stayed over for the night and we had to bounce real early. We both had things to do very urgently. So we get up early in the morning, we're about to lash, but there was just this cold aura stemming from the front room and the door was ajar and we had a look in and there's my mate with his friend who was pretty fresh out of jail. Uh, I knew the guy. And he's fresh out of jail and um you know a lot of guys they think they um they think they have the same tolerance for drugs as before they went in yeah and they've been using a lot of fleety a lot of fleetwood mac a lot of smack the night before you know what i mean and um there's fits and everything all over the table anyway he just looked great man i just knew it in my heart i said to my other friend i said he's brown bread mate he's dead and there was a soft pack of cigarettes on his chest. He passed out with a pack of cigarettes open on his chest. And the mate I was with lent in and grabbed a cigarette as he needed a cigarette. And then we started getting into a tiff over that because I said, this is a shit go, you know, like, I think the guy's dead. We're trying to wake everyone up. But if you've ever hung out with users before, you know, they don't like to have their hit interrupted. And everybody was just smashed. They couldn't come to. And there was also a big stook at this place, right? A big stash and just mitigating circumstances as to why we didn't call Ambo at the time. I still feel a lot of guilt of that years later because he was a good guy and it turns out he was in fact dead. And um, I just think there's nothing I could have done that could have helped to save his life. But at the same time, maybe for my own selfish pride, I could have done something to try and assist the situation at the time. But it's just the factors that go into it of this lifestyle when you're so numb numb to what's going on yeah and it's just a it's just a shame that 
that's the attitude that forms within that lifestyle because you're numb to the pain and there's a lot of variables to the situation that causes you to react differently than how you would if you're just living clean, you know? And um, yeah, to give you some perspective of where this lifestyle leads you to, the guy that lent in and grabbed a cigarette off the dead guy's chest, he ended up turning gay in the boneyard many years later in prison and he was a lagger too. And my mate bashed him in the yellow sub for it. And subsequently he got bashed on the outer for it by another bloke I know too. And um, yeah, I haven't seen him in many years. And the dead guy's friend who'd been using with him the night before, he would later go on to die of a heroin overdose himself in the toilet to Box Hill Central. And for many, many years after that, whenever I go to Box Hill Central just to have a feed or just to just to cut through, if I go to hang a piss in the toilets, I'd always think to myself, is this the toilets that my mate died in? Is this the cubicle that he died in? Yeah, still to this day, if I go there, it still still triggers that, that thought. Yeah. Mmm. Everything just becomes funny after a while, which is truly sad because once upon a time, we were all just innocent young kids, you know, but you get to the stage where you're so in tune with your darkness that everything just becomes funny. You know, I can remember this one day, actually, um, I was sitting there smoking hongers with a mate of mine at this guy's house in Camberwell. And I think back then it was like maybe PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2 probably, maybe even PS3. Yeah, no, I think PlayStation 2. And there was like a chat room on the side, right? I'm not a gamer, but the guy whose house it was, was used to sit there and play video games. And there was a chat room coming up on the side. And there was this guy trying to sell pingers on there. He said, I've got a 100 or a 200 pack left or something like that. Me and my friend were just laughing. We said, yeah, tell him to come to Campbellwell Station. We'll meet him there. You know, we had two other hectic units from the east. One was pretty fresh out of jail. He used to have a big reputation and not so much anymore. And then another hectic unit that still remained in mind to this day. Was, yeah, he's a good staunch bloke and they were both coming to meet us. And um, anyway, we go to meet them and then, man, this guy full agrees to the to the siege. He's going to bring all these drugs to Campbellwell Station. And yeah, the whole thing was just funny. We were just laughing the whole time, you know. And even this boob head we were with, we didn't know the slang at the time, but he's saying to us, we tell, we tell him to go, we give him the rundown. So this guy's coming in about 20 minutes, he's just got off the train himself, and he goes, yeah, nah, sweet boys, anything goes down, i got a boner. <laughs> we're laughing our fucking head off, we, we thought he meant he's got an erection, he meant like a boner, like a shank, you know, long hard thing down your pants, like slang for a shiv. And then um, we were just laughing the entire time, you know what I mean, but... Yeah, I don't think it would have been too funny for the other guy. One minute he's playing PlayStation, next minute he's getting rolled for two, three, four grand of drugs at Campbell Station, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, yeah, like, I started to think, like, man, something's not right with the way I'm viewing the world. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I say this, selling drugs is just as addictive as doing drugs. Yeah, I say that. 
That's all I'll say. You know, you always hear this ridiculous notion that people say about the price of life. Oh, you know, the price of life is cheap in Asia or the Middle East or they cut your head off for nothing in El Salvador. And Don't think that the West is not exempt. Don't think that there aren't individuals in our society that will take your life for fuck all. Because... The human race is complex, you know, like, I'll tell you a story, right, this is about over 10 years, 10 years back, in a car, driving down Whitehorse Road, and, um, my friend that's driving, he asked us, he said, how much would it take for you guys to kill someone, and don't get me wrong, he's not trying to solicit a contract killing at the time, it was just the kind of dark, twisted sense of humour things that we would talk about, and me and my mate that was riding a shotgun, we, um, we said, no, 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 it's it's not our go. Someone would have to really violate your loved ones or you'd have to be at a, a point of life or death survival to kill someone. It's not really our go, you know. And bear in mind, at this point, uh, a knock, like a contract murder, was the going rate was about 80 grand at this point in time, give or take, you know what I mean? But there was a loose figure attached to it. It was about 80 for a knock, right? And my mate to the right of me, there was an awkward silence. And then he says, I'll do it for 10. I go, what? Me and the other blokes, what? He said, yeah, yeah, I'll do it for 10. Go, Damn, 10 grand, you know what I mean? Take the life of another man, 10 grand. But that's how he was living at the time. And... He's still a dear friend of mine to this day and people probably listen to this and say, how could you be friends with such a sick, twisted individual? But got to understand that this guy has shown me so much warmth and loyalty as an individual and I've known a few killers and maybe I'll see them differently to how you would see them portrayed in the media or what you think of them when you're watching from a distance, but just is what it is because it's kind of like once you transcend the barrier of being involved in the criminal lifestyle the code of ethics shifts there is a high code of ethics attached there's a certain moral code you've got to abide by but when you cross over into this lifestyle you're playing with fire and you play with fire you get burned it's the unfortunate realities of it it's a sickening reality. It's not something I encourage the youth to get into. Yeah. The price of life, huh? The funny thing about anxiety is two things. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sometimes the more you're anxious about something, the more you will wheel it into existence. It's almost like a form of self-sabotage. But at the same time, the crazy thing about anxiety is that it's usually never the thing that you're super anxious about that happens, but you'll be blindsided by a different tragedy that you weren't expecting. Anxiety's a funny thing, man. A lot of people struggle with their identity growing up. That's why we have cliques and social climbers and all these kind of things. And every culture has its own 
framework of this, you know what I mean? And people are just straight up shit talkers too because you got insecure people that will lie and cheat and steal to advance what they think others will view them. You know, it's okay to like stuff. It's okay not to like other stuff too. There's no need to feel pressure to fit into a certain clique or a certain social hierarchy or subculture. Just be genuine. I always respected the most genuine people. I think that's the staunchest thing you could be as an individual. You know, like, identity is tough for young people there. They want to be a part of something. Everyone wants to be a part of something. But I think I was always so much on the outer. I felt like so much of an outcast that I was able to see it from this bird's eye view where, yeah, I hung around in a lot of different scenes and pretty much lived a double life my entire life. I, I transcended many different cultures and, and social domains, but it's all genuine. I just followed my instincts of what I was attracted to. And if I want to dress a certain way, if I want to act a certain way, if I want to talk to a certain way, it's because it flows through me naturally. And I think that's the epitome of fresh. That's what it is to be a fresh individual, which was a really big thing growing up, to have your own style, to be fresh, you know, this notion comes from hip-hop culture, graffiti culture, the lifestyle, but I think it's relevant all across the board, you know, fuck all the cliques and all the social climbing and the this and the that and the da da da, it makes me sick, you know what I mean, a lot of shit talkers over the years too, man, god, yeah, I remember this one guy we used to call Hot Boy. Hot Boy. Every day was a different lie, a different fabrication story about guns and gangsters and bullshit. At the end of the day, it was just a zanny head. Just a pip head, you know? It's sad because looking back at it, you're dealing with just a really insecure young male that's creating this false fabrication about themselves, thinking that they're swaying the vantage point of others. Really, all they're convinced, the only person they're convincing is themselves, you know? This is common too, like, even for guys who you think are tough, tough guys, you know? Guys making up stories about doing armor guard trucks, and man, sometimes I feel like I've heard it all over the years, you know? It's fucking bullshit, you know? Live life as an individual, treat everyone how you wish to be treated, and radiate good energy amongst the community and usually comes back around to you yeah usually comes back around to you yeah let me tell you when you've got a lot of issues and mental health issues and unresolved traumas you go to extreme lengths in order to cope in order to find coping mechanisms and then you go to even further lengths to protect those coping mechanisms it's all about numbing the pain that you feel and you think that close calls within your lifestyle would change you, but often they don't. You never change until you're ready to change, you know? I remember being in a car crash one night with a bloke that I wasn't even really friends with, but we were just running this little mission and we were driving. We were in McLeod, which is also an area I hardly ever used to hang out. But we got T-boned, right, by this older couple in a four-wheel drive. We spun around and we, like, nearly rolled, but 
was all good and then we just landed in the middle of the train tracks in the middle of a level crossing i started smashing my mate in the chest because i came to a bit quicker than him and i said go 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 like we're in the middle of the fucking train tracks and um i just remember thinking imagine if i had died that night and my mom and my brother and my loved ones would be thinking what was he doing out there at this time with that person in a car and would that really be my legacy is that how I died as a young man in a car just running some random mission in a suburb on the other side of the city and I really had this existential crisis about it but did I get get up the next morning and change the way I was living life no I didn't not at all I had a close call with the sniffer dogs at Ringwood station one time too it fucking got my heart rate up but same thing the existential crisis lasts about four hours go to bed wake up the next day and just go further into the lifestyle you know what I mean because the pain underneath is too much the unresolved traumas and the anxiety and the the shame and the guilt of your existence and this this absolutely toxic cauldron of thought patterns He's driving you to behave in a certain way that you just can't escape from. You feel like it's got power over you, but that's a false narrative. You learn eventually when you're ready to change that you've got agency and power over your own actions. And there's no point in spending your lifetime blaming people that did you wrong and that kind of thing because you learn eventually that holding on does more damage than letting go. And... um that's a real tough pill to swallow, but it will help you in your journey. Let me tell you, that will do wonders for you in regards to shifting your mental state and working on yourself as a person. 110% bro, for sure. Music is a really powerful thing and it's a really integral, underrated part of growing up too because, you know, I've always made music, right? since I was probably 11 years old. Um, I was really involved in the hip hop scene and right from the age of 12, 13, I was going to hip hop shows. I was entering rap battles. I was learning to make beats. I was hanging out with kids that I met through the scene from all across the city, building lifelong friendships with some really amazing people. We were just innocent young kids like buying records and making beats and writing raps and performing live and even by the time I was 15, 16 I was supporting international acts and touring and doing crazy shit with the hip hop stuff you know and even before that many years ago I used to play guitar actually in year 7 when I was 13 years old I was in this band called Weed Horner too <laughs> yeah like I always had this this fascination with music and I think it's a really important part of growing up because certain music from certain eras can transport you back in time and they always stick with you over time and certain songs just trigger certain memories and I think that's a beautiful thing you know and I read once upon a time that the unity of a large-scale crowd at a music event is probably like the closest thing to a religious experience when you've got 10 20,000 people in a stadium engaged with the same song that's moving them all emotionally it's almost like a spiritual thing you know and I think that's the whole thing for me that music is incredibly spiritual and I think certainly growing up um, music is a very spiritual thing and I think it's a big part of healing too is 
using music as a trigger and as a as a coping mechanism and especially for me making music as an outlet for sure you know and I was fascinated by the music scenes that existed across Melbourne too, not just hip-hop too, like I had a lot of mates that were in rock bands and house music DJs and all sorts of stuff, you know what I mean, because I always rolled with a lot of creatives and I always lived a double life too, funny enough, like for a long time, for most of my life actually, I always felt like I lived a double life, you know, even in primary school, I was school captain, you know, they have those little end of year excellence awards, I won all that shit, you know, um, I was always considered very intelligent, they would have my IQ tested, they wanted to take me out and move me up a grade, uh, other parents of kids I know thought I was going on, going to go on to be a major success in some sort of academic domain, you know, like, I was really, I was really fascinated with language and... A lot of it was just because I wanted to impress my parents and I felt pressure. But I also have always had a natural proclivity towards learning, that's for sure. But at the same time, I just had this dark side. I had a lot of mental health issues and low self-esteem and traumas that drove me to get engaged in other behaviours. But I still felt like I always had to keep my finger in all pies because that's just the driving force that was inside me naturally. I still wanted to be creative, I still wanted to be involved with hip-hop and making music and graphic design or designing clothes and fashion and um, then I wanted to be learning, I wanted to be studying academically, I wanted to learn about everything, I wanted to learn about economics, I wanted to learn about business, I wanted to learn about history, I wanted to learn about art, um, but then I also wanted to, to be a good crim too. You know, like, it's um, just the way I've always been. If you really know me, that's, you know, what I'm like. It's genuine. I never, you know, I've always struggled to, to run so many parallels at once. But, again, it's that big drive for stimulation and that desire to be a part of things all across the board. And I'm still like that to today, you know, but there's just a few areas of behavior that I had to chop out of my life, you know. It is what it is, you know. Fashion is something that a lot of people get into growing up. I think particularly more nowadays than ever before. But I was always really into fashion. But I can recall my mother used to be like a seamstress and sew clothing on the side while working three jobs. You know, like she was a salt of the earth woman that really put in for me and my brother. And I always used to be fascinated by garments and style, you know, and... Even these days, you could certainly say that I'm a published fashion journalist. I work in the realm of luxury fashion. But I always, you know where it really started for me? Let me tell you where it really started for me. Before I got into designer fashion and runway shows and archival fashion, it started from hip-hop, looking at rappers and just thinking how cool and entrancing they were with the outfits in the late 90s, early 2000s. You know, I remember the Wu-Tang Forever CD booklet where each member had like a different page with a different outfit on. That was mind-blowing. And then the other thing was the gangs in my area. 
This power and confidence they exuded, well, the fashion was part of it. I can remember getting shark circled at Sanity CD store in Eastland, right, by five or six Vets. I had this Wu-Wear hat on, the Wu-Tang clothing brand. From Ringwood Market, this Wu-Wear hat was probably fake too. But they wanted it, and I was getting shark circled, and I could tell they were trying to snatch it, but we were in this store, and we kept playing cat and mouse through the racks of CDs. But as much as you think that was scary, young kid, man, I just thought that was so cool. I didn't give a fuck that they wanted to roll me. I just thought, these guys are so cool, and like... If you remember that era of the early 2000s too, these guys come through with like big double pleated chino pants and Nike shocks and country road jumpers and boat shoes and had these wild haircuts with like big long rat tails and and parted fringes that went back up in a diamond at the back and like, man, I just thought it was so cool. Like they exuded this style. And uh, I can remember being in Eastland Shopping Centre one time and seeing two guys come through in the same kind of attire, you know, the all Nike, Ralph Lauren, Harrington jackets, big chinos, rock and country road jumpers, everything. Two guys cutting through the food court. And I was with my mum, I was only about nine years old, ten years old. And one guy had a balaclava on in the middle of a fucking shopping centre. Same thing, you'd think that would scare a young kid. But I just remember thinking, man, that is fucking fresh. That is so cool. There's some mystique about these people. It's the body language. It's the clothing. Fucking cool. And, you know, it became a silly thing. You know, I got real good as a, um, as a shopper. You know, I was coming through in, like, mad new outfits every three four days all the time and i was really known for it i wanted to be the freshest on the train line up and down silly stuff but back then when you got low self-esteem this means a lot to you you know what i mean and funny enough it it, it sparked sparked this interest in me that i managed to end up being employed with you know working in fashion and writing about fashion and consulting about fashion and it's funny how the world works out man you should follow your intuitions you know they're not always right but there's a reason you feel something inside your calling mm. love is tough that's one of the hardest things growing up it's one of the hardest things about adult life too can't just go down to the wife store and buy a wife, can you? <laughs> you know, like, love is tough. Particularly if you're a lonely person. Yeah. You know, I think I've only ever been in love once. With someone that I wasn't with for all that long. We were like ships in the night, you know. Two people out on this vast ocean that meet each other for a brief but intense moment. And then, due to our different journeys in life, we move on in different directions. But some part of you always loves them, you know. And and that girl in particular, I wish all the best. For sure, because when you really love someone, you let them go. And in regards to all my ex-girlfriends, I, I wish them all the best, I think... They say all's fair in love and war. I don't really believe that, but 
comes a point where we've spent significant time with a person that they leave a part of themselves with you. And unless they've done you dirty, I think you'll always have a soft spot for them, you know. But I've been through a lot of crazy shit in relationships, you know. Actually, I saw an ex-ex-girlfriend of mine just before I moved out of Melbourne and moved to Sydney. I hadn't seen her in like five years. And just listening to her life journey was just crazy, you know. We used to live together for three years and we went through stuff that young couples just never really go through, most of them. Uh, we're just two young people that had a lot of issues and just trying to figure it out for ourselves, you know, too young to know better, but yeah, let me tell you, if you think I've got yarns, you should listen to my ex-girlfriend talk, she's got a lot of crazy things to say, she should do a podcast or a book herself, let me tell you, she's been through a lot of stuff, but um, yeah, I think Love always comes to you when you're not looking for it. It's like the law of the economic law of diminishing returns when you really go looking for it or mm, Yeah. For a long time I thought I wasn't capable of love. I was too emotionally detached to be capable of love. It's something that I'm slowly trying to understand. I think it's the hardest part of growing up for me is love, that's for sure. I tend to just neglect it because it's just easier that way. I think there's still a void inside of me that can't be filled by the love of another person anyway, you know. But young love is a beautiful thing too. Two young innocent people just attracted to each other and just trying to make it happen. Yeah, it's a beautiful thing, man. Yeah. Yeah, let me tell you something. You might bump into a lot of people that will say I'm a pretty intelligent guy, but I'm a fucking idiot, <laughs> right? Right? Now, really, listen to it because from where I've come from and from my perspective, sometimes it's just the simple pleasures that get me in life, you know? And when it comes to women, let me tell you, one of the best feelings I've ever had in life is having a beautiful girl on my arm, beautiful girlfriend from a nice, beautiful family, or at least a semi-decent background, just full of life, on my arm, both of us dressed up to the nines, looking beautiful, two grand cash in my jacket pocket, going out for an evening on the town, having a nice three-course meal, going from bar to bar, just, that's pure romance to me, man, that's everything to me, because... I never knew anything like this growing up. So when I got the opportunity to live like this, it's addictive, man. It's addictive, man. It's one of my favorite things to do in life. Yeah. Yeah, self-harm. Self-harm is something that plagues a lot of young people, man. Yeah. Even an ex-girlfriend of mine that I lived with dated for many years, she used to have some horrific scarring from self-harm and I know a lot of other people as well that have this. And One thing I never really told anyone myself either is back in the day when the box cutters were real big and young guys were just carrying box cutters and stuff. Me and my friends went and bought some box cutters from Coles that were like 80 cents or something for those really like shitty plastic ones. And 
we bought them as like weapons, you know, but I remember going home that night in my bedroom and I don't know, there was a certain numbness came over me and I actually slashed my right arm. And I still got a little scar there. And I think I just threw off to everyone that I just cut myself or whatever. But I knew that what I was doing was fucked up. And I had this intense self-hatred. And there is something numbing about self-harm. Which is really tough, you know, because... If you have this intense self-hatred and, and this emotional deprivation and this belief that you deserve abuse to do it to yourself creates a, a sense of calm but then there's a sense of shame it's it's not right you know I remember coming out of the shower one time when I was living with my ex-girlfriend and opening the door to the spare room and she was cutting herself on her thigh I just remember being shocked, you know, I was shocked, I felt like it was something that I've done, or you know what it is, but she wasn't shocked, it was just, that's just, it's just a coping mechanism, the same as doing drugs, or gambling, or smoking, or eating food, or drinking alcohol, or excessive exercise, or anything, it's all just one coping mechanism, it's just a very, uh, avant-garde coping mechanism, you know, like, yeah, yeah, I think, like, um, yeah, self-harm is a really difficult one, because it's similar to drug abuse in the sense that it can go too far, yeah, it doesn't take much to slip with self-harm. I think a lot of men, young men, old men, a lot of men in general really do struggle with their weight and appearance. Um, but I think it's a little bit taboo to talk about it. It's something that's typically seen as a feminine-centric issue. But let me tell you, man, I was 120 kilos when I was 12. I was addicted to junk food. Um, I was really ashamed of the way I look, you know. Um, I could recall my father bullying me for it too. I remember one, one day he snatched me inside a room and stripped me down to my underwear, just forced me to rip off my clothes, just ripped them off me and, and forced me to look at myself in a mirror. And he said, look at what you've done to yourself. You know, look at you, fat and disgusting. And I really developed a huge feeling of shame around my weight. You know, I just have these feelings where I just, I just want to cut my fat stomach open. You know what I mean? I just, ugh, I just, I felt like I deserved all the abuse that I could put onto myself, or that others could put onto me. But um, the funny thing, I was, I was always still a really popular kid. I didn't really get bullied for it that much at school, but everyone knew that I had a weight problem. You know, um, certainly something you can't hide when you're overweight. That's for sure. And um. I struggled a lot by the time I became adolescent because, like, once girls and guys started experimenting, I wasn't the type that girls would go for, you know, and I never took it personal, but it still hurt, you know, and I think, I remember used to go to cricket training, I used to play cricket when I was 12 or 13, I showed a lot of promise as a leg spin bowler, but... After a while, I'd start going to cricket training and the cricket coach would make me run laps of the oval while the rest of the kids got to train in the nets. And I used to say, why? And he said, because of your weight. 
you got a gift, you're a great leg spin bowler, but you need to cut down the weight. And, you know, I know this is like old school tough love, you know, the way my father and my cricket coach and everyone um, treated me. But at the time, I just felt so humiliated. It really did a number on me. Um, I just felt really abused, you know. And then uh, I ended up losing a lot of weight around 16, um, probably 35 kilos I lost the first half of it through like running and exercise and then the second half of it I just lost through drug abuse but I fluctuated with my weight ever since and I know it's something that I've touched on with a few other guys it's a really like private matter where it shouldn't really be you know it's um it's just like most things that are stigmatized in the domain of mental health and such it's just something we just got to discuss and you can't let this burn you up inside but even still now like some days I take a look at myself in the mirror and I think I just want to cut my fucking stomach open or something, you know. And I'm not even that bad a shape, but it's just this long-held shame in regards to how I look and my body, you know. And yeah, it's tough. It's tough because a lot of men go through this and I think it's largely defined as like a feminine-centric issue, like I said. But, you know, um, and, I, and I feel for the girls too, you know, I dated a, I dated a girl for many years, we lived together, who was bulimic and had problems with anorexia, and it's like a class A drug addiction, it permeates through the entire being of that person to the point where it's just a total obsession, and it governs the way they live their life, I, I feel really sorry for girls out there that struggle with their weight and their appearance on any scale, because I understand the depths to which... Something that seems so trivial can have such a huge effect on your mental health. Like, it's tough. But then again, at the same time, I'm not the biggest fan of the body positivity movement in regards to anything goes. I think there's a point where we've got to strive to, to do better and to make ourselves healthy for us to show love and care towards ourselves. Yeah, your weight is a big thing, man. It's a really, it's a really taboo topic for a lot of guys, you know. But it affects a lot of guys, and I'm talking skinny guys, really overweight guys, guys that to me look like fucking Adonises, you know. They used to be jacked and train and have dream bodies that still had crazy insecurities about the way they look. It's like, it's not so much the weight and the appearance itself. It's the It's the extension of insecurity and trauma that drives you to look at yourself in a certain way and to have thought patterns developed that are not exactly healthy or rational. Yeah. Weight's tough, man. I'll go for a fucking run right now. Going to therapy was probably one of the best things I ever did with my life thus far. Probably one of the best things I ever will do. Actually, I went to see one psychologist in the early sort of 2010s, 2010, 2011. I was really in a bad way. You know what I mean? I was really in a bad way and I knew it. I was aware of it. My mother was aware of it. It was a known thing, but it just didn't really help. I didn't have the right psychologist. And it wasn't until years later where an ex-girlfriend who I'm no longer with now, but she pushed me to go. I mean, she really pushed me to go. I'm talking like months, she was on my case, and even though we don't speak anymore, we're on good terms, but I can't thank her enough for that, because one of the best things she ever did 
one of the best things that ever happened to me was someone cared enough about me to push me in that direction and help me with a referral to a really good psychologist, one of the most important people that ever walked into my life or I walked into his life, walked into each other's life essentially. But yeah, like it's tough. There's a big stigma around seeing psychologists and they don't care and they don't understand. And I know it's like any profession, some are more skilled than others, but a type of therapy that I did was called schema therapy developed in the early nineties in New York. And basically a schema is a long held belief that you have about yourself that usually emanates from the way you were raised and the environmental factors of your home life between zero and 10 and what happens to you in life and certain other moments that trigger PTSD and things across the across the journey beyond the age of 10 you know but it helped me to separate the voices inside my head that were saying different things different ways I'd feel about myself on different days my brain's like a pinball machine it doesn't stop even now but it helped me to declutter and get inside my head from the vantage point of another person and to look at myself as just a young boy because once upon a time we were all just children incapable of understanding our own emotions and in these vital years is where we learn a lot of bad habits and a lot of toxic thought patterns that continue to mold and form and are still at play in our adult lives and going to therapy to unpack all this kind of stuff in a professional setting cost me a lot of fucking money and a lot of time I've been in therapy for seven to eight years now but I'll never ever ever regret all that work that I've done on myself it was tough it was lonely at a lot of a lot of points but I think if you're someone out there that listens and thinks that you've always toyed with this idea, just give it a go. You know, we go to a dentist to get a checkup on our teeth. Why not just go to a psychologist to get a checkup on your mental health? Even if you are a happy person, how can you maximize your happiness? You know, I think as a society, we've got to start retraining the focus around mental health and promoting it into into the community as a totally destigmatized normal medical type of procedure yeah one of the best fucking things I ever did man going to therapy it's a long hard journey and it's probably going to continue for many years to come but yeah Yeah, you know, suicidal ideation and the idea of suicide and everything is um, it's crazy, man. It's something that I experienced a lot of and, you know, I'd never tell anyone. I suffered in silence for a lot of my life. And it's only now, the last few years, where I've found the, the courage and the strength to be open because I want people to understand me, but I want to try and be somewhat of a beacon of hope and wisdom to others that suffer in this journey, you know, because um, I've always had problems since I was a little kid, you know, but there was a few points in my life where I couldn't see a way out. And truth is, suicidal ideation just arises from not wanting to feel how you feel in that current point, but finding no other alternative way out. 
Man, I, uh, there was even a point where I really tried to turn my life around. I went and did a university degree at 26 years old, and I got really suicidal throughout this point. But every time I got close to doing it, the fear hit, and I realized that I wasn't ready to end my life. But I would still wake up and I'll think about killing myself 20 to 30 times a day. This little voice in your head, it's like a, like a devil on your shoulder. The grim reaper with his skeleton hand on the back of your neck. Yeah, I could go to take a sip of coffee and watch my hand grab the coffee cup and think, shit, what have I got to do today? Hey, I've got to be somewhere in about 10 minutes and yeah, I should kill myself as well. Fuck, I should just die. Hey, like, fuck, fuck, fuck. Um... Yeah, no, no, let's get, you know, get back on track. What do I got to do? Anyway, 20 minutes later, walking up the street. Oh, yeah, tram's coming, not too far away. Man, I should jump in front of the thing, hey. I should just fucking splatter myself on the front of it. Fuck. Like, you're not in control of these... These urges that are coming towards you. It's a sick, sad thing, you know what I mean? Because no one deserves to think like this. And I've known some people that have taken their own lives and... I just wish they had held on because, you know, never know what's around the corner. Yeah. And I used to think crazy things too. I used to think, oh, if I shoot myself, I've got to get access to guns, which I always pretty much had since I was a teenager through various contacts. But then the guilt I would feel for the person that I get the gun off. You know what I mean? How are they going to feel that they gave it to me? And then, you know, or you jump in front of a train. What about the train driver? You know, it's dark that you get this close to thinking about it. It's it's dark that you really consider these factors. And yeah, I suffered in silence for a long time. I never told anyone except my psychologist. I couldn't bring myself to tell anyone. I was just ashamed, but I was scared. And, yeah, I remember one night walking from the city up through the the tram stop at the top of Victoria Street and then onto Brunswick Street. And if you know me, I walk pretty briskly. I always keep my posture relatively in check. I walk around like I've got some dash, you know, without poking my chest out like a fuckwit, but I try to conduct myself in a, in a certain way, but... I just remember my whole body going limp. I felt like a sandbag on legs. I just felt heavy. And I was so depressed. I just remember thinking, I just want to slash my fucking throat and bleed out here at the top of Brunswick Street. I don't want to take another step towards home or towards whatever. I ended up going to sit in the front of Mario's restaurant in Brunswick Street by myself and, and trying to write some things down on a napkin. I just sat in the window of Brunswick Street at Mario's uh, had a had a meal, and then just went home. But yeah, just these certain moments that you come into contact with your own mortality. And one thing I've always thought as well is that I can't kill myself yet because I've got so much more to give to the earth. But then once I've done all the things that I want to achieve, then I can kill myself. You know, like. That's fucked up in its own self, but at, at least at least it kept the inspiration and the will to live pumping, you know. And there's certain days where I struggle now, but I don't have this suicidal ideation pumping through me that I used to have. I certainly don't. 
Um, I try to talk to as many other people as I can that are suffering in this realm. And yeah, always try to talk about my experience because that's all I can do. You know, I'm not the psychologist, but I've been through a lot. And um, I can usually offer some perspective to others. And I know what it's like to, to not have another voice of reason there. So I feel like if I can give that to others, then that's doing a great service to the community, you know. Yeah. It's tough, man. It's tough. You know. How do you fall in love and have someone love you if you don't love yourself? It doesn't work. You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, when I was really suicidal, right, I used to have this notion in my mind. I used to have this thought all the time, and I just hoped and prayed that I would die in heroic circumstances so that my loved ones, my mum and my brother and the people around me would never know that I really actually wanted to commit suicide but couldn't bring myself to do it. I used to be walking down Swanston Street, and I'd see trams running and sometimes think, man, if a little kid runs out in front of that tram, I'm going to go grab them and hopefully the kid survives and I die. Uh, hopefully I could rescue someone from a burning building and they survive, but I die. So I'd go out as a martyr, I'd go out as a hero, but secretly no one would know that I actually wanted to die. And I used to have this vision all the time, I used to dream about it because it was like the, the shortcut, the shortcut to escaping how I was feeling at the time. And it's fucked, you know, I used to listen to music and think about what would be the song at my funeral, what would be the big moment, I used to envision it, and I used to think it's going to be Man of Colours by Ice House, this is going to be maybe Camilla by The Art of Noise, um, I used to have this kind of like short list of songs that would play, I sometimes considered even writing the song on a bit of paper and stooking it in my room so that after I perished, if people were able to go through my possessions, they could see it. And it was like leaving a cryptic clue for my afterlife. Yeah. Yeah, real twisted stuff, man. Yeah, real twisted. And really hor horrible, f and, and really horrible for my loved ones that would have been left behind, man. Yeah, I'm very glad I'm still alive and breathing. 100%. Yeah, uh, let me tell you, if I had a son, I would love for him to be engaged in sports and picking up women. This probably sounds funny when you're looking at it, but, you know, the way I grew up and being overweight and all my mental health issues, they were two things that I kind of neglected over the time. And I feel like once a lot of guys at my age got really hooked into trying to pick up girls and all this sort of stuff, I had no hope. So I bounced out to other behaviours and I think there's something innocent about young males that just follow the path of trying to have a good career and pick up girls and get good at sports I think that's really wholesome I think these are the types of behaviours that if I had a son I would like him to gravitate towards you know yeah so I had a lot of really bad experiences growing up trying to pick up women you know girls would tell me I'm too fat 
I remember like all my mates were going to play spin the bottle with all these girls, but they told my mates to to count me out because they didn't want me to be part of the spin the bottle game. So they none of them had to kiss me. You know, like I don't blame the young girls, right? But at the moment, at the but at the time, these young moments, man, it's like a dagger through your heart as a young bloke for sure. You know what I mean? So I always felt like living that kind of like clean, wholesome, well-behaved life, having a career and having a girl and all that kind of stuff was just light years away for me. That wasn't going to happen for me. Yeah, yeah, and even I can remember this girl, right? When I was about 10 or 11 years old, even in primary school, and everyone was like kissing each other down the back of the oval. There was this one girl that I was going to kiss, but she told a mate of mine, I will kiss him, but he's too fat. Let me tell you, about 15 years later, I'm at a wedding, right? I'm at this wedding, and I start talking to this girl, and I looked a lot different by the time I got to this wedding. I start talking to the girl, the same girl, and... Halfway into the conversation, she looks at me and she goes, sorry, excuse me for one moment, but who are you? And I said, oh, it's me, it's Patrick, we went to school together. Her jaw dropped. She was like, what the fuck, I couldn't even recognise you. Yeah. She offered me a lift later on in the evening. She said, drop me to drive back to the city of Melbourne with you. Yeah, I just thought there was something about it. Later on, I found out that she actually had told someone that I knew that she couldn't believe what I looked like and she was hoping that I'd come home with her that night and I remember thinking that's the girl that rejected me when I was a fat little 10 or 11 year old guy and then here she is at this wedding years later in her 20s and she wants to go home with me get fucked (laughs) yeah jokes on her actually the joke's probably on me because I heard now she's married with a couple of children and I'm 32 years old and single so yeah fuck I don't know but yeah sometimes you have these little wins these little moments you know what I mean the G up your confidence yeah and I've been with a lot of very good looking women these days yeah I still struggle in love but yeah I'm not that 10 year old fat kid anymore that's for sure I had a lot of mates go in and out of jail over the years, and quite a few of them go into the supermax, you know what I mean? Barwon and Port Phillip and these big Victorian prisons. And let me tell you, it's no way to live. It's no way to live for anybody. And I see these young guys out and about caught up in these little gang wars and the the online stunting and the postcode wars, or whatever they want to refer it to, right? I see these young guys going down the same pathways, and I think to myself... These guys are too green and too young to understand that the perils of the lifestyle will catch up with you. It's like an avalanche. No matter how good you think you are at skiing, that heavy snow will come down on top of you. And before you know it, eventually one day, you'll be in 23-hour lockdown with one-hour run-outs if you're lucky. Or you'll be in a working unit, slave labor for the government, or G4S, a private company, making fucking number plates or doing whatever they want you to do. That's no way to live. You're capable of so much more as a young individual, but you can't see you can't see the bridge between who you are now and where you're heading. And if you don't change course and change trajectory, the lifestyle's gonna catch up with you. Because there's not many people that avoided it. 
only a select few people turn their life around, you know. And I don't know, maybe I want to get out there in the community and start talking to younger guys and I don't know. We've got to do something in society as well. On the whole, we've got to start to have a look at the rates of recidivism and reoffending and uh, institutionalized beings that are coming out of our prison system and realize that the system does not work. The way we rehabilitate individuals in our society has got to change because the prison system is largely corrupt and does not work. And there'll come a point in time where people like myself... And a lot of people I know from what I call the straighty 180 side of life that do care about the prison population will start to make more noise in regards to how we can change, how we can intervene earlier. We've got to start getting things right in the home environment for young young children before they become so far along the conveyor belt and the factory line of society that they become young offenders, then they become adult offenders. We've got to intervene earlier. We've got to understand that the way we attempt to rehabilitate people, the way we cage people, is largely inhumane and corrupt and just does not work. What hurt me most about COVID, to be honest, is looking backwards at the cultural fabric of Melbourne that raised me and seeing how decimated it had become and how stifled it had become due to the response to COVID because... Yeah, I remember a time where Melbourne as a city was the beating heart of culture in Australia, I suppose, you know. Looking back, it was just a myriad of artistic cultures and everything from skating to graffiti to music to dining to bars to experiential moments. Melbourne was just on fire and it was one big circus to me and all my friends when we were young. We all got down with this lifestyle as much as possible. And yeah, of course, I had a, a dark side to it, a seedy side to it. I think every city in the world does. And to be honest, that was part of the circus for us. And um, yeah, I miss the fabric of OG Melbourne. And I send my blessings to everybody from that era that's still discussing it and still motivated to to do some kind of cultural practice in life that assists in retaining that status for Melbourne. Yeah. Yeah, I don't live in Melbourne anymore because I decided it was time in life to expand my horizons and look outward and experience something different. But I still think Melbourne's the coolest fucking city in Australia. Fuck yeah.